I'm going to start by reading Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, and then uh, we'll be looking mostly at Hebrews chapter 3, but let me begin by reading chapter 4, verse 1, verse 10 and 11. That frames our time this morning, because the theme this morning is the failure to mature into rest. We're talking about these challenges that believers faced then and now. Hebrews 4, 1, therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering God's rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. And I skipped out of verse 10 of Hebrews 4. The one who's entered God's rest has rested from his own works even as God rested from his. Therefore be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience. That's our theme here, the failure to mature into rest. And so the question on the table is how do we mature into rest, and I'm going to try and show you from chapter 3 the means to do that, but to help you through chapter 3, I'm going to begin by telling you a story. Uh, in 2014, summer 2014, right now, in August of 2014, I was uh, hiking through the Alps. I took a sabbatical from the church I lead, and I spent, my wife and I spent 40 days, we started in Italy, and we hiked Italy to Austria, Austria to Germany, Germany to back to Austria, to Liechtenstein, to Switzerland. And then when we were done uh, with that hike, my wife flew home and I stayed and taught a little bit in Europe with the torture ministry that I'm privileged to be affiliated with. And so I was teaching in Schladming in Austria, in the Alps, and uh, it's, it's autumn by now. And I became friends with some members of the cross, the Swedish cross-country ski team because they go there to train before the snow hits, right? So there's all these uh, Swedish cross-country ski um, athletes and their training was they would run uphill, up this ski hill, starting at 2,500 feet and ascending to 5,800 feet. So about 3,300 feet, they'd run up take the lift down and run up again. And then they'd go have a workout after that, right? So, um, because I would walk on these trails that they're running, we saw each other pretty regularly. And then they ended up saying, hey, you want to join us? And I just laughed hysterically as they passed. But then I was talking to them, and I, I wanted to learn the philosophy behind the training, right? And so this is, this is what I learned. When these guys are running uphill, they're always breathing through their nose. This does have a spiritual application, so don't disengage. They're always breathing through their nose. And when they're breathing through their nose, their, their heart doesn't elevate very far. And if you do that long enough, after about 30 minutes, when you breathe through your nose, whatever that pace is for you going uphill, as you breathe through your nose, you kind of enter into this zone where you begin to burn fat instead of sugar. So that's beautiful. If you're trying to lose weight, you begin to burn fat instead of sugar. Uh, and the fat then becomes your fuel because if you're burning sugar when you're exercising, then you kind of bonk after a half hour or 20 minutes or whatever. You gotta, if you want to go the long haul, you got to burn the fat. And so the reason that that suddenly, as a pastor, I go, boom! Remember in the Old Testament? The, what's the best part that you eat? 
the fat of the, uh, of the meat, the fat of the land. You want, who doesn't love bacon in this room? We want to eat the fat, right? Because the fat is somehow sustaining. And so if that's kind of our, our word picture here, learning to live off fat rather than sugar, when we come into the, 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 the theology of entering into God's rest, the Swedish cross-country team literally said this. Listen to this. I love this. Richard, rest is not no activity. If you're healthy, rest is activity energized by a healthy source. Now, I'm going to say that again because that frames everything that we're talking about. Richard, rest isn't no activity. So when God is inviting you to enter into God's rest, something like this, yeah, I'm resting, man. Netflix, two beers, <laughs> recliner, I'm in. That's not rest. Rest is activity from a healthy source. Does that sound familiar? Galatians 5, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So I'm learning, as I mature, I'm learning to live off the fat of the land. In other words, I'm learning to live out from the source that is Christ who lives in me, rather than the source of my own frail, ego, insecure, lust-driven humanity. So when I, if, I can, if I can feed on Christ as my source of energy, I can live out from Christ, that's rest. So then the question on the table this morning is, okay, how do we enter into that rest? And there are kind of three exhortations that we're going to look at to enter into rest. Number one, hold on. Number two, keep a soft heart. Number three, choose encouragement. And all of those are found in chapter three of Hebrews. So let's go through these real briefly. I want to enter into rest. I want to learn to live kind of off the fat of the land, to feast on Christ as a, as a regular means of living, not just, not, not just a Sunday thing, but kind of this 24-7, I'm drawing on the resources of Christ. How do I do that? Number one, I have to learn to hold on. So I'm reading now Hebrews 3. Listen to this. Uh, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Moses was faithful. We'll hear this today. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken of later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Now watch this. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. So I have, to, I have to hold fast my confidence, and I am, and we are, Christ's house, Christ's dwelling place. So principle number one, you want to live off the fat of the land, you want to feast on Jesus, how do you do that? You want to hold fast your confidence firm until the end. In, in, in other words, over and over and over and over again until it becomes kind of the norm in our life we get up in the morning and we recognize, this is not my day, it's his. This, this is, these are not my lips, I give them to Jesus. This is, this is not my calling, it's Christ. This is my, not my sermon, it's Christ. Not my music, it's Christ. It's all, like I'm here, I'm available, and God is using the frailty of my humanity to display nothing less than his resurrection life. And the more we believe that by holding fast that confidence, it's a confidence, we believe it. The more we believe it, the more it becomes true in our reality. That's why we're told that those who fail to enter into rest fail to enter in because of unbelief. 
In other words, God says, look, I've given you everything you need to live the Christian life. I'm living in you. I'm enough. And then we're like this. When I see it, I'll believe it. No, no, it's already true. You will see it when you believe it. And so the reality that Christ lives in you becomes real and uh, aligns with our experience only to the extent that it is a confidence that we have. Yeah, Christ lives in me. Now, here's the, here's the challenge. Yes, Christ lives in me. Yes, I'm a new creation in Christ. But for many of us in the room, we came to Christ. It may have been a profound encounter. We woke up the next morning. We have a sense of joy, of course, but we're still carrying with us our entire life prior to coming to Christ. In other words, what I call, uh, because I'm a little older, old tapes. There's old tapes playing in my head, right, that shape me through kind of painful experiences. We're told in 2 Peter, chapter, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, that our soul, that's my mind, my will, my emotions, even though I've come to Christ and I'm completing Christ, my soul still needs saving. And my soul is saved, how? Through trials, through difficulties, through challenges. These challenges teach me, just like hiking uphill, I'm learning to feast on Christ. So that when I hold fast my confidence, I'm given the courage to face my, my brokenness. And when I face my brokenness, I'm healed. So if you hold on, I've got good news. Those who hold on, first, they're healed. Uh, if you look at Ephesians 5, I'll kind of explain one way our ongoing healing works. So Ephesians um, uh, chapter 5 says, if I could find Ephesians in my Bible, it's in there, I know it is. It was this morning. Ephesians 5 uh, I'll, I'll just start reading this in, in uh, uh, verse 7. Paul's talking about this new identity that we have, you know, blessed with every spiritual blessing, filled with the life of God. And then he says, we're just dropping in the middle of it for the sake of time. Don't be partakers with those who are darkness. For you, watch this, verse 8. You were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, learning what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but expose them. This is very important. Expose them. Why? Because verse 13. All things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible literally becomes light. So here you are. You came to Christ, your new creation, and then, you know, a week into this new journey, uh, you and your wife get into it over the dinner table, and you find yourself behaving like BC, like before Christ. And you're like this, what's up? I, you know, I thought I was saved. I thought, you know, I thought I'm complete. I thought everything's great. It, it is. You are. And you're still carrying all the baggage that needs to be healed. You need to be healed. So how does that happen? Well, again, it says, when you bring things into the light, verse 13, they become light. So if you want to, if you want to, live off the fat, you got to travel light, you got to ditch the baggage of your fallen nature flesh. How, and I'll just give you one example in my, in my own life. So years ago, uh, I've been a pastor here at Bethany Community Church since uh, December 1995, so a long time. So I come in December, 
And in about February, uh, there's, a, there's a marriage conference starting on the books. Some, some therapist is coming in, he's going to do a marriage conference. Now, I'll just confess to you, I'm not a go-to-the-marriage-conference kind of guy, right? I'm happily married, everything's good, you know. And so I'm, I'm like this, yeah, okay, you can do your thing. And then he says to me, you know what, uh, we'll, I've, he, he goes, I've done this in many churches, I'll tell you, we'll double our attendance if you go. And I was like, I'd love to go, which is a total lie, but whatever. <laughs> I said I'd love to go, and then I went. And so, you know, we're at this thing on a Saturday. There's all these married couples in the church, you know, and they went because I went. And, and so he does his thing, and right after lunch, I'll never forget, he goes, so now we've learned that communication is not the most important thing in marriage, which was revelatory to us and really important because uh, this guy's thesis, this is parenthetical the main point, but this guy's thesis was, uh, you know, if, if communication is the key to a successful marriage, the best communicator, like the person with the best verbal skills, is always going to dominate. And my wife is doing this. That's, you know, because I talk for a living, right? So at lunch, we, you know, we unpack that, and then we get back, and he goes, now we're just going to, you know, every couple's going to go off in a corner, and I want each of you to share um, a painful experience in your life that is that is maybe at the core of a crux issue. Because we'd unpacked as well, when do you argue? And our biggest arguments in our marriage, one, this is just one, there were two, but my thing was this. I'd get mad at my wife if she was late to pick me up from the airport, because I was traveling a lot, right? I'd get, and I'd, I'd, be, I'd be like, you know, I'm waiting for, you know, to be wrapped in arms, and I see other, you know, I get off the plane, and Here's people with signs, you know, welcome home, or people even like, even impersonal signs. IBM looking for Tom, and you know, and then here's me, and there's no one there. And I'm like, what am I, you know? And then my wife would pick me up, and I go, could you not have, you know, and then boom, boom, here we go. So, we're supposed to go back and kind of prayerfully go, are you, am I overreacting? And so we're, we're praying, God, show me, you know, pain in my life. The most painful experience. And so then I shared to my wife, uh, and I started sharing this story. In 1972, the, the band I played in, in high school, in Fresno, went to Europe, right? And so, you know, super fun. So as a 16-year-old, I'm four weeks in Europe. It's Fresno, so there's no flights to Scotland direct. So, you know, we took a bus to L.A., then we flew to London. and So, coming home, LAX, four-hour bus ride. We pull up in the, you know, parking lot of the high school, and here's, and I, this, I still get a little emotional. Here's all the parents, you know, signs and stuff, and, and everybody leaves, the bus pulls away, and I'm literally, I'm sitting on the, on the curb. There's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah, I'm alone. And, and, uh, and I was, I was both super broken. I mean, I was crying. And I was mad. 
I said, oh, man. How can, and I won't get into it right now, but anyway, I was mad. So, so we're, we're in this marriage thing, and, you know, other couples, they're scattered around in a building this size. It's a little, you know, he's wiping a tear from her eye, and there's a little laughter over here. People are holding hands, praying. <laughs> Here's a senior pastor, like heaving sobs, right? Everyone's staring at me, you know. What's wrong with him? We just hired him. <laughs> like, how messed up is he, right? But uh, that, uh, let me just tell you, that was a pivotal moment in my healing. It was a pivotal moment. Like, I had to forgive my mom, who was dealing with a sick husband and a caregiver for other relatives, etc., for n not having the time or bandwidth or whatever for her kids. And, you know, she had her own story. And as soon as I forgave her, these weren't issues anymore. But it's, that's, that's what healing looks like. And so when you're hanging on to Christ, wait, I'll just say this. If you're hanging on to Christ, Christ gives you the courage to heal, to bring stuff in the darkness into the light. And that's what you got to do. Second, when you hang on to Christ, you're given capacity. Uh, in other words, remember what Jesus said in John 7? If anybody's thirsty, right? And I am, so just a minute. If anyone's thirsty, come to me. This is Jesus speaking. And you know, it's, it's, um, it's Mediterranean arid desert, so people understood thirsty. If anyone's thirsty, come to me. And what did Jesus say? Come to me, because I've got a liter here of water. And I'll, you know, I can give you a sip. No, no. This, this is astonishing when you really look at it. Jesus said, are you thirsty? Come to me. I won't just, you know, fill your cup. I will turn you into a river. In other words, I will so fill you that you have the capacity to give and give and give and give. Why? Because you're not giving out of your own strength anymore. You're giving out of me who lives in you. And, and, and so as we hold fast our confession that Christ delights to live in us and we live our life out from that place, not only are we healed, but we're given the capacity to go the distance. You know, we're able to, to live off the fat and, and, and keep going like those cross-country ski uh, uh, people from Sweden, only we do it in, in our, whatever is our calling. And in, in Hebrews 10.32, it says, look, if you're going to fulfill your calling, you have need of endurance. And, of course, the Hebrews were really suffering with, you know, imprisonment and loss of property and different things like that. For us, our situation may be different, but let me tell you, there's a person in the room who doesn't need endurance. This journey that we walk with Christ is not always aligned with kind of our human nature. God is calling us to engage. We want to disengage. God is calling us to serve. We want to be served. God is calling us to love. We, you know, we want to be angry. God is calling us to forgive. We want to hold a grudge. So we got to appropriate Christ over and over and over again. And I'm telling you, it never stops. So, so I must learn to live out from Christ because there's always the opportunity to choose the alternative. And, and, and that's the call of endurance. This shows, I'll give you a couple of examples. My, one of my life mentors is the founder of Torchbearers, who's since gone to be with the Lord, Major Ian Thomas. Uh, he, he 
was instrumental in founding 27 Bible schools around the world, you know, where I'm privileged to teach. And I heard him preach in his 90s. And, you know, you know he'd shuffle up to the podium and he'd open this, you know, big fat Bible. And then he'd go and it was as powerful as 30 years earlier. And I've always been like this. I want, to be, I want to be like that. I wonder, you know, what's his secret? And then uh, after he had qu quit speaking and was really getting weak, I was uh, charged with being his caregiver one morning so that his wife could go to church. This is in Colorado. So, you know, it's a Sunday morning. I'm sitting with Major Ian Thomas, and uh, he goes, Richard, bring me my Bible, you know? And he's a British major, so it's never a please or anything like that. It's just like... <laughs> Yes, sir, you know, and, bring his, and then he says, turn the TV on, and so I turn the TV on, and then it's Channel 10 or whatever. Pretty soon, we're watching a worship service, and he, pull, he opens his Bible, he pulls out a pen at 92, and he's taking notes on this guy speaking, and I was, I was so convicted by that, Right? At the time, I'm 55, and I'm like, yeah, man, my Bible's getting a little fat. Like, that means I use it a lot. I've got this. Like, I'm done? You're never done. Keep learning. Keep growing. And for those of you who aren't Bible teachers, maybe it's not that. Maybe that uh, illustration doesn't resonate with you. Let me give you another one. Every time I come here, I go visit... The house I stayed at when I was a kid here, my grandmother's house, which if you're a decent golfer, you could hit with a nine iron easily from here. It's just right over there. I always go, and I, in the years I've been here speaking, every time I've gone there, I've never seen kids there before. This time, when I went to visit, there's kids playing in the driveway, a younger boy and his sister, about four years older, just like me, and I tell you, that moment was tantamount to the ghost of Christmas past being right here with me, going, that's you, buddy, look at that, you know? And, and everything came flooding back to me, and what, what I realized this time visiting my grandmother's house was her endurance. Because, you know, we didn't eat in the dining hall when I came here. We weren't guests like you are. We were guests of my grandmother. But we would get up in the morning, and Grandma's already gone. She's the baker here. So she's up at, she had baker hours. But, you know, we'd get up, and there's um, uh, Swedish pancake batter made, and cinnamon rolls made, and the bacon is out, and the eggs are already scrambled, just waiting to be cooked every morning. Who does that? Like, I'm a grandparent now. And, and I'm like this, okay, Papa's tired, good night. And I go off with my Dostoevsky to read in the bed, you know. And here's my grandmother, from the moment I arrived, this is what I remember, man, hugs and cinnamon rolls and bacon and Swedish pancakes and then board games at night. And then, you know, 
rinse, repeat, you know, 3 a.m. or 4, whatever's the baker. Well, I don't know what she did, but she was never there when we woke up because she was busy serving you. And then she'd come home and serve me. You know what? That requires endurance. But let me tell you the fruit of that endurance. This place, when my family kind of fell apart through death, this was the safe place. This was it. Like those redwoods, those hugs, that cinnamon roll, that scent of redwood. So that when my dad died and I took a vacation from God, I knew there's a safe place, and eventually that safe place became the arms of God. Largely because my grandmother was faithful at 3 a.m. So, you know, these little things you do here at camp, you know, train day and board games and laughter, let me tell you, you are investing in eternity. That's what you're doing. Don't stop. Is it tiring? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we were talking yesterday. There's no vacations when you have kids. There's just outings. Because <laughs> it's exhausting, right? I get it. I get it. And yet, if you're drawing on the resources of Christ, Christ will give you the resources you need to do the job you need to do. So that's the first thing. Second thing, keep a soft heart. Hold on so that you're healed, have capacity. Keep a soft heart. It says in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart the way they did in the wilderness. Now, we're looking at Moses in the morning, and what we realize is that they heard stuff, and then they didn't respond well, and so they ended up missing the land which was promised to them. They ended up failing to enter into that for which they were delivered out from slavery, right? And, and the, the way that, it, how did that happen? Their heart became hard. And so here, here's what it says in Hebrews 3. Today, when you hear God's voice, what? Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. What does that, well, what does that mean? It, it simply means that when God speaks to you and you know you've heard God's voice, go now. Do it. Don't wait. Because if you wait, you're hardening your heart. And God keeps speaking, but it's hard enough for you to hear what God is saying. So God is saying, shed that thing, that sin, that bitterness. You, do, you, you ignore it. Tomorrow, this is how it sounds. Shed that bitterness. The next day, shed that bitterness. The next day, shed that bitterness. Shed that bitterness. And here's what happens pretty soon. Your heart's hard. And what does it say? Let's fear our failure to enter into the life for which we're created. Because over here in rest, in the fat of the land, this is joy and generosity and peace and wisdom and reconciliation and strong marriages and the capacity to pour into your kids no matter how they respond. It's all over here. And you won't get there if when God says turn left, you say maybe tomorrow. You won't. You must respond today. And the reason this is so important is because some of you have come here uh, to Mount Hermon and yeah, you came for a vacation, but God is going to speak to you and God is going to say something to you here. Hey, buddy, it's time to move on. It's time to renounce that hidden addiction. It's time to deal with your relationship with your body, with your relationship with food, with your relationship with your parents, with your relationship with your stray child, with, with your relationship with money, 
with your relationship with alcohol. I don't know what it is for you, but when God says something, can I just say with all the powers that's in me, like, respond today, don't wait. Because if you wait, it never gets easier to shed the load. And remember, we're talking about traveling life so that we can have endurance and live the life for which we're created. So shed it. When God says, let go, let go. And by the way, when God says, move, move. And when God says, stay, stay. Sometimes we'll need, along that journey, people to speak into our lives. And by the grace of God, people will speak into our lives. We had a massive building project for the church I presently lead in Seattle because when I arrived, it was a church of 300 after a year through, you know, success and seminars and stuff. It, was, it had grown to a church of 200, so that was amazing. <laughs> and, but then it, it really took off, and pretty soon, you know, we were in five services. Anyway, long story, we miraculously were able to buy an alley from the city of Seattle, which had never been done, had never been done since. It's a really cool story. So we, and we bought the alley, and then we're starting to raise the money. <laughs> and then the costs just started shooting up. So, you know, we were told it was going to be a $4 million project, and we raised $4 million, And then it's a $6 million price tag. And um, you guys don't know me well, but I like to succeed. And, I, and that sounded like failure to me, right? So I was like this. I, call, I called the, the chairman of our building committee, the chairman of our board, into, into a, remember, we're in a Starbucks, and I go, you know what, this has been fun, but do we have a way we can give everybody their money back because it's too much money? I mean, there's a huge gap there, $2 million. We can never raise that. And uh, the, I'm resisting, resisting for about 20 minutes. And then Doug, the, you know, the chairman of the building committee, I'll never forget. Barry pounds his fist on the, on the table. It's a little quiet Starbucks. You know, some jazz is playing over here. It's, you know, it's Starbucks. It's, it's Seattle. Nobody pounds their fist. You know, at a stop, at a four-way stop, no one ever leaves. It's an hour. You're way, everybody's, you first, you first. That's who we are. So all of Starbucks hears him, right? Bam! He points, Richard! God's brought us this far. It's been filled with miracles. God's in this. You're anointed. You're called. God wants to do this. Don't back down. Lead. That's what he said. So I was like this. Okay. I'll lead. And then we built it and uh, whatever. The story goes on. But what? Don't miss the point. The point is this, when God is saying something and you know it's from God, don't wait. Don't wait. Some of you, you don't even know Christ yet. And I can tell you what, right now, the Holy Spirit is saying to you, I want to write this great story through you so that you have stories to tell your kids and grandkids someday. Quit writing your own story. Let me take over. If that's you, don't wait. Just pray today. Jesus, <laughs> take over. And then here, very quickly, here's the last thing. Got to keep a soft heart. We know that. We've talked about it. 
And then we need, we need to choose encouragement. It says in Hebrews 3, again, uh, in, in verses 13 to 19, that encouragement is a critical, critical piece of, of the mix here, right? So uh, it says in verse 13, Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does this mean, encouragement? Well, we, we, look, we need to learn that no matter how often we fail or how far we fail, God is still for us. We need to know that we have gifts. We need our gifts affirmed. We, 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 we need to know uh, that what we do matters. We need expressions of gratitude. We need to know that we're not alone in our journey. We need a journey together. And so we're, call, we're called to encourage one another, but the, 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 the way that we encourage one another is by receiving encouragement fr first from Christ. And you, I, I'll just say this, you'll receive encouragement from Christ in, in two ways. First, you'll receive encouragement from Christ uh, through the body of Christ. So if you take church life seriously and you begin to tangle your heartstrings together with other people, then I will tell you, people are annoying and frustrating, I get it, but as well, you will receive encouragement. You, you, you just will. I mean, this is the way it works, right? And so uh, when I look back on my life, there, there's this kind of Rolodex in my life of people who have encouraged me, and I'm only doing what I'm doing today because of those who've gone before me who've encouraged me, and we'll speak of that a bit more tomorrow. But uh, so A, think about that. You've received encouragement. I hope you have. But then watch this. Remember what Jesus said? Let's apply it broadly. Freely you've received, then what? Freely give. You know, I, can't, I grew up in a very legalistic church background. And uh, uh, like, and my family structure a little bit the same. Could never quite do it right enough. And then I, when I went to study architecture at Cal Poly, I became good friends with a you know, fellow architecture student who really, I, I, didn't, I didn't, never heard him say anything bad about anybody. And I'll never hear this moment where, you know, his roommate had stolen some of his work in architecture and claimed it as his own. And, you know, we're at the dining, we're in the dining hall, and I, so several people from the dorm except the thief, right? And we're sitting around, and we all start bad-mouthing this, this guy. Oh, who does that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Except the guy who was the victim, who had his stuff ripped off. And then so I looked, I said, Jim, I haven't heard a word from you. What do you think of this guy? He said, I'll tell you, if I don't have anything good to say about someone, I'm just not going to say anything. So I'm going to pass right now. Who says that <laughs> ever, right? I mean, you work. You have office politics and staff stuff. You know, you, everybody in the room knows about the meeting after the meeting which is way worse than the meeting, usually. What if you said, you know what? I'm going to take up a, as a mantle a ministry of encouragement. So even the people that I am annoyed with, 
You know, I'm going to make a point of finding, because Jim went on to say, I think everybody knows how bad they are. People need to be reminded the good gifts that God has given them. And that's, that's my ministry. Wow. That's a good word. Encouragement. Second, though, we receive encouragement directly from God. How does that happen? Well, here's how, at least for me. I blow it, and God still calls me up here. Really? I'll tell you one story with this, we close. Uh, years ago, I spoke at a marriage retreat in um, Montreal. This is like pre, pre-cell phone, you know, pre the wedding, uh, the marriage conference where I figured it all out. So this is like in the early 90s. And I'm off to, I'm off to, we're going to the airport. And on the way, I'm like, you're going to pick me up, right? When I get home. And literally, she's like this, no, I'm not going to pick you up. Well, we lived 100 miles from SeaTac. She's like, take a van. I go, oh, you don't love me. I mean, a terrible thing to say. I get it now. I didn't then. She's like, oh, no, I love you. It's just that, you know, um, you're leaving for a week. The septic system is broke. I'm homeschooling our children. We've got guests coming to the retreat center. I'm a little busy. Take advantage. This led to a big fight on the way to the airport. Who knew? Speakers have it out with their wives once in a while. So, you know, we're, we're driving to the airport and I'm going to teach on a marriage conference. And the decibel level of the car is escalating like this. So that then, finally, you know, when I open the door to leave, to go to the airport, she goes, don't hurry home. <laughs> and I was like this, I love Canada. Maybe I'll just stay a while. <laughs> Bam, slam the door. And then... I feel like an idiot, of course, but there's no this. And by the time she's home, I'm on a plane to Detroit and then a chip shot to Montreal. And the whole time, you know, Satan's right here on my shoulder. Oh, yeah, marriage conference, right, yeah. You go, boy. You really got it. You show them what to do. You're the man, you know, Sar- the sarcasm of Satan. Like, I, if there's anyone on the planet less qualified, it, it's, there isn't. Like... So I go to the thing, and, you know, it starts Friday night. You know, I'm in my room, sulking. Their version of Dave. Hey, uh, first song. Yeah, I'm praying. I'm not praying. But whatever, you know, go away. Then finally, you know, after two more knocks, he comes, he says, you got, you're on, you're on. When this song ends, you're on. So I go out, I do this thing. The thing was John 2 about, you know, new wine, and I said, you know, some of you in the room, (laughs) uh, the wine is dried up. No joy. The blessing is, is, is gone. And I'm like, I'm preaching to myself. You need (laughs) to come to Christ and allow him to restore who he wants to be in you, because who he wants to be in you is the best wine, not Two buck, Chuck. The best one, right? So then, you know, I 
let's pray. You know, everybody's praying, and I'm praying. And I open my eyes, and there's all these little subgroups. They busted up in little groups of people, and they're all weeping and hugging each other. And I go to the Dave version, and I said, what just happened? And he goes, well, it's interesting. There was a massive church split, and this, two, this one church in Montreal became two, and they hadn't been talking to each other. They were really mad at each other. And they both signed up to this retreat, not knowing the other was here. And they, and they came in, and Richard, look, you have, you know, they're reconciling right now. It's a miracle. So I go back, and I write in my, I'm in my, you know, I write in my journal, God, you should not do this. <laughs> because if you use me when I'm such a mess... You know, what motive will I have to get out of my messes? I wrote in my journal. And if I ever could hear God laugh, that was the moment. God's like this, ha! <laughs> when were you ever not a mess, Richard? <laughs> I use messes. Really? 1 Corinthians 1, chapter, uh, verse 29 30. Consider your calling. Not many mighty not many strong, not many rich, not many beautiful people, not many together people. Who does God use? You know, the poor, the weak, the fool, the outcast, you know, the person, you know, battling with whatever that issue is. So, are you in a mess? Welcome to the club. It's okay. The mess should give you hunger for the better story that is God. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that we can choose encouragement, that, that you'd long to be in us as your dwelling place. You want us literally to be the house where you're at rest. Wow. Would you build into us the habits toward that end? And I pray, Father, for those in the room right now to whom you're speaking who want this better story, this story of hope, the story of capacity to give and serve and love in a world filled with taking and, and power and anger. May they say yes to you. It's my prayer. And I just ask, while the heads are bowed, if there's anybody here who is not in God's better story, or you don't know you're in that story, and you want to say yes to God today, would you just raise your hand? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Father. We commit those to you and all of us as we walk in your better story. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.